You're listening to a podcast from the BMJ. Welcome to the BMJ podcast. This week, we know chocolate is the ultimate comfort food, but can it help your physical as well as emotional heart? We hear from the author of a meta-analysis about the evidence. It's just about chocolate. It's, it's all kind of substances that come together in a complex structure that interact with each other and have a beneficial effect. But before that, an analysis published online last week called for the medical profession to face up to the opioid crisis. I'm joined by one of the authors of that paper, Irfan Dalla, who's an internist and a lecturer at the University of Toronto. The number of deaths associated with opioid use in the USA has increased from around 4 to over 14,000 in the last decade. This data is aggregate for CDC poisoning incidents, so it's hard to define exactly how opioids are associated, but it's consistently collected, so it will show a worrying trend. I started our conversation by asking Irfan about trends in prescription and how they've changed. That's right. So prescriptions have also increased uh, uh, worldwide, but in particular in North America over the last 20 years. We've seen an increase in the absolute number of prescriptions. We've also seen an increase in the number of individuals being prescribed opioids. And where we've looked to see whether the number of prescriptions correlates with the number of deaths we have found consistent relationships. Mm, and you would expect to see that. Were you able to look, though, to see if the quality of the prescription, as it were, has um, changed over time? So these people, this, these extra people who are being prescribed it, are they getting the same care, the same monitoring as, as people who were prescribed it in the past? You know, that, that's a really good question. That's an area that hasn't been examined in as much detail or as in as large a scale as the, the death analyses. There are some small studies. There's a group in Ontario, for example, that has looked at the quality of prescribing, uh, and they have found that many patients who are being prescribed opioids for chronic non-cancer pain are being prescribed the drugs in a way that is inconsistent with the evidence and even inconsistent with the guidelines that do exist in this area. And we'll get into that evidence in a little bit. But before that, I wanted to get into demand. I've heard anecdotally that uh, patients are demanding more opioid pain relief. Um, is there any data to, to back that up? Again, I think the data come from relatively small studies, but there is little doubt that uh, patient demand is a significant factor in the rise of opioid prescribing. Most of us who practice uh, general medicine or primary care do see patients coming in with pain-related syndromes who ask specifically for uh, opioids uh, and sometimes for particular opioids by uh, name. And I think uh, you know it's important for physicians to understand that these are medications with significant risks, not only the risk of overdose, but also, of course, the risk of addiction. And because these drugs are both effective analgesics uh, for acute pain, cancer-related pain, and because the drugs also produce other symptoms, such as symptoms of pleasure or euphoria, uh, you know, it's not surprising perhaps that patients do come into the office or into the emergency department requesting these medications. 
in your uh, article, you say that prescription has moved on from being something that was generally for palliative care in, in cancer to a much more general use of it for, for example, musculoskeletal pain. You point out that there's a, a lack of evidence, which I'm surprised by personally. Is this something that you were surprised about? Uh, it, it was actually. You know, when I went through my training, I was uh, actually quite a liberal prescriber of potent opioids for chronic non-cancer pain uh, because that was what was taught to me. And I think that was the message that our ward attendings and opinion leaders were promulgating. And it was only after really looking at the evidence myself in great detail that I realized that most of the randomized controlled trials in this area were a very short duration, generally four months or less, and in very carefully selected patient populations. Now, Opponents to titer control say that in many of the deaths associated with opioid use, the patients didn't receive it as a, a legitimate prescription from their doctor. They were either lying in some way or got it um, illicitly from elsewhere. Do you think that's a valid criticism? So we, we've been able to look at that question directly in Ontario, and we have found that the majority of people whose deaths uh, are related to prescription opioid overdoses have in fact acquired some prescription opioids via prescription in the months preceding their death. We, of course, don't know whether they have also been, been uh, acquired some drug through illicit means uh, on the street or from a drug dealer. Uh, but even if some of the drugs are coming from a drug dealer, uh, somewhere along the way, those drugs were likely uh, moved into the community from a physician prescription, which is one of the things that makes this epidemic so different from the heroin epidemic or the cocaine epidemic. This epidemic is related to prescription drugs, and for the most part, these drugs find their way into the population because physicians write prescriptions for them. Uh, and in a way, that makes the epidemic all that much more preventable because we could reduce the number of prescription opioid overdose deaths simply by prescribing these drugs more cautiously. Is that just by prescribing to people with legitimate pain? So, I, you know, I think the pharmaceutical industry and some key opinion leaders have also promoted this concept where patients can be relatively easily categorized into two distinct types, patients with legitimate pain and patients who misuse the drugs. And in fact, those of us who practice medicine find that that distinction is often not very easy to make and there is considerable overlap. There are many, many patients who have real pain but who also misuse drugs and who also uh, are at risk for addiction or overdose. And how to treat those patients is not at all clear. Uh, you know, we, we definitely don't have the evidence that would suggest that prescribing patients uh, in this situation potent opioids does them more good than harm. One thing that doctors can fall back on if they're worried about prescribing strong opioids um, is this WHO analgesia ladder. Is there evidence that that's either being uh, ignored entirely or runs are being skipped or something? What's going well, on? It's a great question. Uh, first of all, it's important to remember that the WHO analgesic ladder was developed specifically for patients with cancer pain. In that context, you know, we don't worry nearly so much about the potential harms when somebody is 
actively dying of. Uh, the WHO has not issued a policy on chronic non-cancer pain. And then, then on top of that, there's the specific question you raised, whether people are actually following the ladder, even though the ladder isn't really designed for chronic non-cancer pain. And we know that people, the physicians, aren't always following the ladder, uh, and that quite often physicians start with a very potent opioid or even a long-acting opioid when there could be a reasonable expectation that the pain might diminish over time. Um, do you think the lack of a kind of equivalent ladder for non-cancer care is something that's really missing and that's it's something that physicians would like to have? I, I do, very much so. I mean, in, you know, physicians like to have clinical practice guidelines and uh, in Canada and I believe in the United States as well, there are no clinical practice guidelines for chronic non-cancer pain. As a whole, what we have in Canada are clinical practice guidelines for the use of opioids in chronic non-cancer pain, uh, and there are similar guidelines in various American jurisdictions. But, you know, if you think about that in the context of coronary artery disease or diabetes or hypertension, it would be very unusual to have guidelines that focused on the use of ACE inhibitors in hypertension or the use of uh, ureas and diabetes, what physicians are generally more interested in is, a, is the overall approach to a condition. And in chronic non-cancer pain, that's particularly important because there are non-pharmacological interventions as well. Some studies, randomized controlled trials, showing that cognitive behavioral therapy and physiotherapy combined can be very effective for chronic non-cancer pain, particularly in terms of getting people back to work. And there are actually no data from randomized controlled trials to suggest that opioids help people get back to work. And there are no studies comparing opioids to cognitive behavioral therapy and or physiotherapy. So, you know, first of all, there's not very much evidence. uh, But secondly, a more holistic clinical practice guideline taking the whole the problem as a whole would I think be much more helpful to practitioners than very narrow guidelines focused on how to use opioids. So you think that physicians could avert this trend by following guidelines better or being a bit more vigilant in their prescribing? Absolutely. I, I mean, I think it is physicians' responsibility to prescribe these drugs in a way that is safe, uh, not just for the patient who is sitting in front of them, but also for the community at large. And there are ways that physicians can identify patients who are likely to misuse the drugs and ways that physicians can monitor patients. So, you know, for example, prescribing these drugs to individuals who with a history of substance use or alcohol use problems is not likely to uh, be safe. Um, regular urine drug screening, uh, many people believe is advisable because it allows for the detection of uh, other drugs that have not been prescribed. It also allows for the detection of situations where the prescribed drugs are not being consumed. Uh, And there is good evidence that urine drug screening is not used as frequently uh, as is recommended in guidelines or as frequently as uh, it would be ideal. And so that that is part of what I mean when I say physicians should prescribe these drugs more cautiously. And our funds analysis is available online on bmj.com. Now, some food for thought. 
A research paper published this week looks at chocolate consumption and cardiometabolic disorders. I'm joined by Oscar Franco, one of the authors of that paper. He's a clinical lecturer in public health at the University of Cambridge. Thanks for coming in to talk to us, Oscar. Well, thank you, Duncan, for the invitation. This is something that papers obviously love to, to write about, but less often scientists. So why did you decide to, to have a look at this? Well, my, my main interest is cardiovascular health, not cardiovascular disease, and I'm very interested in the role that lifestyle might play. I grew up in, in Colombia, in a city 1,200 meters high in the Andes, and I hear about uh, Mediterranean diet. Nevertheless, when you grow up in the Andes, the Medi- Mediterranean diet sounds a little bit uh, far yes, yeah. and unrealistic. So I'm very interested in helping people to find uh, solutions that are at the reach. In Colombia, we have uh, large plantations of uh, cacao. And we had seen previous studies that had uh, shown that chocolate could have a beneficial effect. And I'm, I was interested to see whether that beneficial effect would translate beyond uh, reductions of intermediate factors like blood pressure or insulin sensitivity and, and will, it, will it translate into heart outcomes, prevention mm. of heart disease uh, events and stroke. Okay. This is something that obviously uh, to do meta-analysis has been studied before and you uh, identified a lot of, of papers when you did your initial search but you came down to, to seven in the end that were eligible for, for inclusion so it looks like they've been studied quite extensively but not particularly well. So could you take us through the, the sort of process you did to, to get down to those seven? Yeah, it's, it's a large effort and, and there are clear criteria that are established well from the beginning of the study that you would um, specify that, uh, what should be the characteristics of the studies that you want to be including. Mm-hmm. Initially we found over 4,500 references. We did search in, in multiple databases including a, a Latin American database that is hardly ever searched but we were expecting to find studies done in Brazil or countries like Venezuela or yeah. Colombia. The majority of the studies, as you have pointed, were not uh, of sufficient quality or characteristics uh, of what we were expecting to, to include. Therefore, at the end, we came uh, retrieving only 53 papers from the original 4,500. Mm. And from those uh, 53 retrieved papers, we selected only seven that, that fitted our, our criteria. Yeah. Obviously, for for a medicine analysis, you want RCTs and, and cohort studies. What kind of papers were you finding in the end? At the end, what we found was that there was, there was not a single randomized control trial. The majority were cohort studies. There were six of them. And there was one that was cross-sectional. And of these seven papers that we included, there were four published in 2010. So it was all very recent, mm. recent studies that were coming out uh, in in publications. Sure. So we have to say that uh, the results of your meta-analysis are obviously limited by the fact that you're looking at observational studies here. Yes, uh, it's uh, one of the things we, we try to highlight, that these are initial stages. This is observational data. There might be confounding, there might be another factors explaining these associations. These are just associations, there is no causality yet. And we need further experimental data of the role of chocolate on preventing cardiovascular disease. Okay. But we, we, we do have... Uh, previous experimental studies uh, evaluating the role of chocolate in reducing blood pressure, for example, and and they have they had been published uh, before our, our our paper. What we need now is uh, experimental data on heart outcomes. Sure. Um, so if we keep those caveats in mind, what did you find? What were what was the result? What we what we found was that there was an association of uh, higher levels of consumption of chocolate with 
lower levels of events of cardiovascular disease. So lower risk of developing heart attacks or stroke. And the association was approximately a 37% reduction for all cardiovascular events and a 29% reduction for stroke events. We also wanted to look at where there was an association with, with the risk of developing diabetes, but there was only one single paper uh, from a study that was done in Japan. And we were not able to draw any conclusions just based on a single paper. Sure. Is there a putative mechanism for this sort of heart protective event? That's sort of the one million pound question <laughs> I always get. There are, there are many theories. There are many factors. Some people say it's, a, it's a flavonoids, antioxidants, it's substances that are similar to endorphins that make you feel better. Mm. Some people say it's just the fact of snacking. Some people might say that it's just a proxy of other lifestyle factors that you are following. I guess the answer, we, we don't have the real answer yet. There's more research that, that is needed. And perhaps the answer is, is all of those uh, that I mentioned. Mm. It's just about chocolate. It's, it's all kind of substances that come together in a complex structure that interact with each other and have a beneficial effect in your body, either through uh, physiological mechanisms or psychological mechanisms of, of the process of snacking and, and enjoying the sensorial experience of chocolate. Mm. Yeah, and obviously that's something that a, a meta-analysis wouldn't answer. Uh-huh. Um, there have been a few rapid responses to your article asking for a little bit more detail about certain things. So things like um, the property of the chocolate. Uh, were you able to look at um, whether the 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 amount, the percentage of, of cocoa in there mm-hmm. made a difference? Uh, was that data available? No, it wasn't. Uh, fortunately, the the data was limited, uh, both in quantity and also in detail. So we were not able to, to come up with answers for those kind of questions which are really relevant and important. So we need further further studies that uh, will help us to clarify this and, and provide a, a clearer message to the population regarding chocolate. Okay. Um, now, this is, paper has been picked up an awful lot, and you presented it at a, a conference this week as well. So, uh, what's the reaction been? I understand you've been uh, talking to the media a lot about it. There's been a, a, a massive reaction. I've been uh, having interviews with the media for uh, the last week, nonstop. The media treats always these messages in, in different ways. Sometimes you read, uh, go out and eat all the chocolate you can. <laughs> that wasn't the message. And some, some other treated uh, just as, as the spirit that we were trying to communicate regarding the, the key, which is moderation in, in any, anything you consume, anything you do, and, and, and highlighting the potential role that chocolate might, might have and as other factors in, in preventing cardiovascular disease. Mm-hmm. So it has been a sort of a roller coaster, uh, intensive and exhausting in the last week. But it's, it's always important for us uh, as public health practitioners to be able to translate and communicate their findings to, to the general public. Sure. So um, if you did have that message uh, and you could put, now is your chance to put it into your words, what would you say? Uh, with, uh, the message now is not for those that are not eating chocolate to start eating chocolate. That, that's not what we're trying to advocate, or at least not yet. <laughs> <laughs> and for those that are eating chocolate to do, to do so in a, a sort of a moderate way and in a regular manner, not just sit down and, and have as much chocolate as you can for, for the total week. Uh, but more in a moderate manner, in a regular manner, and in in very small or uh, moderate quantities. Great. Well, Oscar, thank you very much for coming in and talking to us. Thank you. That's all for this week. We'll be back next week with a guide on cognitive assessment of older people. Join us then.
You're listening to a podcast from the BMJ.